Well, it's great to be here. It's such an honor to open this passage of Scripture with you. Happy Fourth of July here in sunny Southern California. It is, as usual, a great day to go to the beach. And church, have I got a special beach trip planned for us this morning? We're going to the banks of the Jordan in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. That's it. That's my whole, that's the whole transition. That's the, that's the segue. All right. Beach trip. Here we go. Luke 3, 21 to 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. In Ravenna, Italy, there is a baptistry, a special church building for baptisms. In the roof dome, it has an image of the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. But wait, there's more. Just down the road, there is another baptistry, roughly the same size and shape. And it, too, has the ceiling image of Jesus being baptized in the Jordan. These are the two images. You have to walk about a mile and a quarter to get to the two. Um, but you go inside the two buildings, look up, and it's the same image. Here's the strange thing, though. One baptistry is called the Arian baptistry, and the other one is called the Orthodox baptistry. Now, Arianism is the ancient heresy that claims Jesus is not God, but is rather the greatest creature God ever made. The fake church organized around that false belief built a baptistry and decorated it with an image of Jesus being baptized. Why? If you didn't believe Jesus was the divine Son of God, what would you be thinking as an Arian recipient of baptism while you were being baptized into the name of this non-divine person? Well, if, if all you had was the image of Jesus in the Jordan, you could misinterpret it in lots of ways if you're just looking at the image. Arians might think of it as the moment where Jesus was officially appointed to be the Savior. There's another ancient heresy, adoptionism, uh, which loved this image because it fit their story that Jesus turned into the Son of God at this point. For adoptionists, Jesus became God when the Spirit came down upon him and promoted him to Godhood. It's a heck of a promotion. You know, local boy makes the big time. So, bad theology alert. Whatever the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan means, it can't mean that. Now, um, I'm picking on this a little bit because of the ambiguity of, of images. Um, I was an art major in college. Actually, this set of images has something to do with my um, turn from the visual arts to systematic theology. Um, partly, I really wanted to answer this question. How could an orthodox set of believers believing in the incarnation of the Son of God look up and see this in their baptism, but right down the road or at another time, um, Arians could look up and see the same theology there. This kind of clued me into the fact that um, pictures may be worth a thousand words, but often they need a thousand words to nail them down so they can be interpreted properly because images communicate but with a much looser grammar. Before we take this off the screen, let me say one thing that this image is great for in the context of correcting false belief. If you go to the other extreme and instead of demoting Jesus to not divine, Instead, you think that Jesus is the Father and the Son and the Spirit, a form of modalism, um, and popular today uh, in oneness movements that you might run into. This image will drive you crazy. The whole story will drive you crazy, right? Because if you're convinced that Jesus is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, 
then you've got to do like ventriloquism here because there's a voice coming down from heaven. You're going to have to hire three actors, even though one of them is a bird. Um, like it's just, this will immediately give you big problems if you're involved in the heresy of modalism or that, that kind of oneness teaching that fails to recognize the eternal trinity. But what does the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan really mean? Thinking of these two baptistry decorations, you can really see how much the proper interpretation matters. The heretical group using the Arian baptistry looked at the image and entertained thoughts about a Jesus who was not fully divine. The church using the Orthodox baptistry, we can hope, looked at the exact same image and were reminded of the truth, that God was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that this was shown very clearly at Jesus' own baptism. So getting this right really matters. In our time together this morning, I will tell you what happened in the Jordan River, and I will tell you exactly what it means. Here are the three things that happened. Number one, Jesus got in the water with us. Number two, the Spirit descended on him. And number three, the Father spoke from above. So three-point sermon, three persons of the Trinity, it's all coming together. And here's what it means. The Trinity is behind our salvation. So let's take these in order as they appear in the text. Jesus got in the water with us. The Spirit descended on him. The Father spoke from above. Luke 3.21, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, dot, 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 I just want to stop on that section because this is the first important thing we need to see. Picture the scene. There's a big crowd at the river. People are getting dunked in the water by John the Baptist, who was so good at baptizing that everyone called him John the Baptist, right? It wasn't his denomination. It was just he was that good of a baptizer. What kind of baptism was John preaching? If you look just up in Luke 3.3, 3, it tells us clearly John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It couldn't be any clearer what he was up to if John had set up a big banner that said, sinners, line up here to repent. And John's preaching was so effective, as we've heard, that people came to recognize their sinfulness and their need for forgiveness, and they got in that line. They thronged to the river to stand there under that banner that I just made up, that marked them as sinners, right there in public, in front of God and everybody, as they say. And Jesus was also baptized, the text says. He joined that crowd. He got in that line. Jesus stood under that banner that said, sinners line up here. Jesus was also baptized. Now, you've got to figure that John the Baptist saw Jesus joining in with the crowd of sinners looking for forgiveness and tried to sidle up behind him and say, cousin, you're in the wrong line. Is they unway is for inner say. Yeah. I know that was divisive, like half of you are pig Latin people and half are not. Okay. Uh, and in fact, over in Matthew's gospel, we do get a, a couple of extra verses reported right here. Matthew 3.14 tells us a little conversation between Jesus and John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus replied, let it be so for now. It's proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. Now in Luke, we don't get that dialogue. We just see Jesus doing the thing itself. He simply steps into the water and fulfills all righteousness. Jesus joins the crowd of sinners. The Son of God got into the water with us. This is an almighty act of solidarity with sinners. Everything up to now has been Jesus' private life. Luke gives us an especially long account 
of those days before the public ministry begins. But when Jesus goes to the big rally of the most important spiritual event going on in the recent memory of Israel, he takes his visible position among the sinners. He is beginning his public ministry by doing that. And the first step he takes in that public ministry is this step of solidarity, of identifying himself with the problems of his people. I mean, everyone's got a million problems. Jesus is going to go around in the Gospel of Luke, healing and casting out demons and doing things like that. He's aware of all the many kinds of problems people have. But he also saw right to the heart of the main problem. We are sinners. John's powerful preaching brought out the crowds, and it brought them to confess their sins and their need for forgiveness. Jesus saw that and recognized that the time had come to put into action the work he had come to do, to meet us where we are in our sins, in our need for forgiveness in that water. It is a very dramatic opening move for the work of the Messiah. You could say Jesus made a big splash. I mean, yeah. Jesus got in the, Kenny, thanks for telling him I'm funny because that's really, that's, I can feel that's really helping. Jesus got in the water with us. Uh, He came down to join in our sorry situation. Um, So you've got the water is full of sorry sinners and the Son of God. What we're seeing here is the one who in himself is perfectly holy, absolutely well-pleasing to the Father, stepping into a relationship that sinners who are not holy and are not well-pleasing to God exist in. He mingled with the multitude of sinners, one commentator says. And that commentator goes on to say, He who thus proclaims himself a sinner and voluntarily presents himself to receive the baptism of penance is the second person of the Holy Trinity, before whom the angels veil their faces and cry, Holy, Holy, Holy. Now this is the whole reason the Son of God took on human nature and dwelt among us, to make our problems his problems and solve them for us in himself. This is the main, most pointed reason for the incarnation of the Son of God. This is why he was born of Mary, so he could be fully human and truly one of us to take on our issues. He dove into the human gene pool so he could wade into the water of the Jordan with sinners. This event at the Jordan receiving John's baptism is a big deal. It's tempting to say that this step of solidarity is the biggest thing Jesus did for our salvation, and we might say that if we didn't already know how the story ends. The story ends with Jesus doing something much bigger than this. On the cross, in Luke 22, right before his arrest in the Mount of Olives, Jesus tells his disciples, the scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors. Did you catch that? Jesus is quoting Isaiah 53, verse 12. We could flip over to Isaiah 53 and see the whole prophecy that our sins were laid on him, that he was bruised for our transgressions, that the weight of our iniquities was laid on him. None of this was his own sin. All of this was ours. And this is the passage Jesus quotes uh, right before he goes to his trial, saying, he was, don't you know that Scripture's got to be fulfilled? He was numbered among the transgressors. Now, you could look at a man being crucified and say, I guess that guy did something pretty bad. But in this case, you'd be wrong. When you see Christ on the cross, you see that he is holy and innocent, but has entered into absolute solidarity with sinners and is, in the words of Isaiah 53, as Jesus himself declares, being fulfilled in him, is numbered with the transgressors. 
But do you see how right here at the very beginning of his public ministry, he is being numbered with the transgressors, and he's taking the action to make the numbering go that way. It's the same exact move, Jesus joining us in our sin. But here at the baptism of Jesus, the Isaiah prophecy is not being fulfilled, fulfilled. Jesus is just now beginning his path. His baptism is actually one of the minor mysteries of his life in the shadow of that major mystery, the cross. So Jesus joined us in the water. Do you know you can only get as clean as the water you're using to clean yourself with? Uh, I had a job in college where I uh, worked in the art gallery and I was supposed to clean an old uh, room, a storage room that had just, just seemed like generations of dust in it. And I was given, there was no running water, I was given one bucket and a mop. And um, I worked until the water in the bucket was dirtier than the room I was trying to clean. And then I thought, well, now I'm just shoving mud around. This is not going to work. So I had to make several trips to get cleaner water to ever get the room uh, to a cleaner level. If you've ever had to clean something up using dirty water, you know there's a limit to how good it can get. You may clean the thing up to the level of the clean you're able to get to, but it's absolutely set by the level of clean the water is at. So when sinners underwent John's baptism, they confessed, repented, and came out cleaner. When Jesus stepped into those dirty waters of confession, he was already cleaner than the water. There was no benefit to him in terms of spiritual hygiene in his personal devotional life. And that's why some of the church fathers say, when he was baptized, he purified the water of baptism. Imagine being so clean, you like cleaned the bathtub by standing in it. It just, it just got cleaner. Like you can't, dirt can't stand in the presence of that cleanliness. The baptism of John wasn't Christian baptism yet. It was for repentance, but it wasn't in the name of Jesus, and it wasn't in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit yet. I mean, Jesus was there. In fact, quite conspicuously, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were there. The Trinity loves baptism. But this baptism Jesus submits to is like ours in certain ways, and extremely unlike ours in others. Do you know that Jesus saves us both in being like us and by being significantly unlike us? Right? To say that he joined in with sinners doesn't mean he joined in the sinning. He is coming to it and, and stepping into our problem vicariously. Jesus stepped down into the water, and he did it for us. But he also did it for God the Father. Jesus Christ the Son loves God his Father. We'll see this throughout the whole Gospel of Luke, a special emphasis on Jesus' close relationship with his heavenly Father. I think in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus prays to the Father in a way that we can overhear exactly once, right towards the end. But in Luke, it's all over the place. Luke 6, 12, all night he continued in prayer to God. Luke 9, 18, he was praying. The disciples were with him. He went up on the mountain to pray. Luke 11, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Luke 22, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus joined us in the water because he and the Father were working out the plan of our salvation, and Jesus loved to do what pleased the Father. In the eternal life of the triune God, the Son has always rejoiced in the presence of the Father and basked in the perfect fellowship of his love, a love made perfect and shown perfectly in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And here in his incarnation, the Son took on human nature, took on our sin problem, and did what pleased the Father. 
But that brings us to the second thing that happens to Jesus. First, he got in the water, and then the Spirit descended on him. Luke 3.21, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Now, brothers and sisters, we are speaking now about the Holy Spirit, so what can I say? Lift up your hearts. The Holy Spirit is as mysterious as the wind that blows wherever it wants to. The Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. The Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity who we know that we do not fully comprehend. We can fool ourselves into thinking we've totally got the Jesus and the God the Father thing locked down and comprehended. We're wrong about that. But with the Holy Spirit, we are conspicuously brought up against this thing where we say, oh, that's the strange bit that exceeds my understanding, as if the rest of it didn't. But the Holy Spirit uh, is the person who brings us face to face with that. Every word of Scripture is from the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But some of those words from the Holy Spirit are also about the Holy Spirit. And those words about the Holy Spirit are the moments where the mystery of God breaks the surface and shows through as mystery. This is one of those passages. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. What does it mean? If you'll permit me, I want to sneak up on this passage a little bit by taking a moment to look ahead at something that happens in Luke chapter 10. Jesus has just sent out his disciples, and they've returned with reports of the spiritual power that they have in the name of Jesus. They also report that some cities received the good news, while others didn't. Jesus has the following response to their report. This is in Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So right at the beginning of that, did you catch Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit? He, he, he loved it. He, he basked in it. He reveled in the Holy Spirit and delighted in that communion. He is absolutely delighted that the gracious will of the Father is being carried out, and he just gushes, such was your good pleasure. Uh, there are not a lot of stories in the New Testament about Jesus being this happy. Uh, th there is a heavy load of positive emotional language right here in the passage I just read. Jesus rejoiced. He thanked God. He said God's gracious will or good pleasure was being carried out. And he gave a little tiny lecture on Trinitarian theology here, too. No one knows, knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. If you know God the Father, it's because you know the Son, and the Son chose to reveal the Father to you. That's how you get that knowledge. It's sort of insider information. You've got to know somebody to get it. And if you know the Son, uh, you know someone that only the Father knows, and every one of those words Jesus spoke there are words inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that is the Holy Spirit in whom Jesus rejoiced. You know what makes God happy? God makes God happy. The Son loves the Father and rejoices in the Spirit. The joy of the Lord is His strength. The Father loves the Son and also rejoices in the Spirit. Here's what Philip Ryken says about this passage. In, in Luke 10. Because Jesus is God the Son, his joy is a divine rejoicing. 
It is a perfect joy, unspoiled and undiminished by sin. But here his joy is especially intense because he is rejoicing in the revelation of the Holy Spirit and in the secret saving work of the Father. Luke is showing us the joy at the heart of the universe, the rejoicing that takes place within the Godhead, where God is both the subject and object of his own joy. The Father, Son, and Spirit glory in one another. Okay, big stuff here, right? God is happy. The Blessed Trinity is, you know, blessed. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. I wanted to show you this because I think it's the right way to understand what's happening at the Jordan when Jesus is baptized and the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. I think Jesus, in the very act of stepping into saving solidarity with sinners, was looking into the heart of heaven and rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. I want to be totally clear, it does not say those words in Luke 3. I imported them from Luke 10, but I'm doing the best I can to interpret this dove-like downward motion of the Spirit. This, I think, is what we're seeing happening in other places in Luke's gospel. It's the clue to what we see happening at the baptism, which on its own is less clear and precise. Why is it less clear? It's less clear and precise because at the baptism of Jesus, it's acted out in some kind of dramatic, symbolic, visionary sign language. The Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove. The Spirit here sort of pantomimes visibly what is going on invisibly between the Father and the Son. In chapter 10, we know Jesus rejoiced because it says so. We know the Father is pleased in the Son because he says so. But in addition to all that clear speech with those very helpful words to interpret things, we also get an amazing outburst of symbolic action in the language of bird movement. I, I didn't write this. I'm just trying to explain it. Uh, imagine God not only clearly saying what he has to say, but also adding to it something like a little show, like, here, let me act that out for you. In visible form, it would be something like this. Right? It's something like that. Descending, coming down like a dove. I am not going to say very much more about this. It is what it is. It's coming down like a dove. Dove rhymes with love from above. Like, do something with that. <laughs> if you could see the son rejoicing and the father blessing, you would see some kind of downward movement, always connecting them invincibly, beautifully, joyfully, and somehow poetically in a bird-like fashion. And when you saw it, you would not be seeing a new thing that had never happened before. You would be seeing a manifestation for our benefit as Jesus begins his public work for us of the eternal love and joy of the eternal trinity. It's important to recognize this because unless you do, this is another way you could misinterpret the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. You might see the dove descending and say, I guess Jesus didn't have the Holy Spirit before this. Right? You might think this is the answer to the question, when and how did Jesus get the Holy Spirit? But you'd be wrong. This, this is not the origin story of Jesus the superhero. This is not how he got his amazing powers. This is not the first time the Son of God and the Spirit of God have met. For one thing, the Holy Spirit has been all over the first three chapters of Luke already, right? Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zechariah and Anna and Simeon have all been moving in the Spirit. John the Baptist, since he was a fetus, like he's a, he's a sharp student, yeah? Uh, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and grew in the Spirit and so on. But even before that, the Son and the Spirit were perfectly one in the unity of the Holy Trinity from all eternity. 
That goes back before the first page of Luke. It goes back before the first page of Genesis. It goes back before there were pages or books or creatures or anything but the Holy Trinity. This meeting in the Jordan doesn't begin a new relationship for these two. It manifests to us how that eternal relation is taking place among us now and is being put into operation in the work of our salvation. So I told you the Trinity is behind our salvation. That means two things. First, the Trinity is complete and perfect and already itself before God takes up the work of saving us. The Trinity is back there or up there or just there and is doing just fine. And second, it means that the Trinity is nevertheless really, truly engaged with us in saving us. All hands on deck, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit doing the work of salvation, mighty to save, one God. Okay, the third thing that happened is that the Father spoke from above. And the voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. This voice from heaven identifies Jesus. It testifies to him. It certifies who he is. I mean, everybody's got an opinion. What we have here is God's opinion, the Father's opinion of the Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. My Son. Just imagine how awkward it would be if you were standing there that day at the Jordan as one of those people who doubted Mary's story about Jesus' conception and birth or mocked Jesus as having a human scoundrel for a father or being fatherless. The voice from heaven begs to differ. This is my son. This is my son. This is my son. It's a hot day at the beach for the skeptics. Let me ask you, who are you going to believe about who Jesus is? I recommend believing God the Father. Never mind the public opinion polls. Never mind canvassing to see what people think. And actually, Jesus presses this question about whose opinion counts a little bit later in Luke chapter 9. Uh, remember there in Luke 9, now, it happened that as he was praying, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. It's a pretty lousy answer, right? Anyway, um, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And was Peter remembering the voice from Jordan, where the crowd was saying whatever crowds say, but the voice from heaven said, this is my son. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus commends Peter for his confession, saying, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. Remember that nobody knows the father except the son, and nobody knows the son except the father. So if you want true knowledge of them, you're going to have to accept their testimony about each other. God is the best witness of the truth about God. The father bears witness to the son. And here's what the voice of the Father says about Jesus. He's my son, he's beloved, and he's well-pleasing. Now, I'm going to analyze these terms for you in just a second, but can we just take a minute and make sure we don't miss the note of holy joy in what the Father has said? This is my beloved son in whom I am well-pleased. It's just full to bursting with delight, with pleasure, with good pleasure. Remember what makes God happy? God makes God happy, or in more Trinitarian terms, the son makes the Father happy. Rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. God is blessed, has blessedness, is one endless event of Trinitarian life and love and light in an unimaginable fullness of joy. It's the kind of thing we could more easily sing about than talk about, but my job is to talk about it, and everything I'm saying about it here is true, 
the eternal Father eternally rejoices in the eternal Son through the eternal Spirit. That's what's going on, and that's what we're catching one little glimpse of in the voice from heaven. Now let's analyze and try to understand exactly what the voice of the Father says from this opened heaven out of which the Holy Spirit has descended. He says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And I want to distinguish between belovedness and well-pleasingness. Beloved is a form of that special New Testament Greek word for divine love, agape, you've probably heard of. When we talk about God's love in this way, we're focusing on God as the source of that love, the one who generates or radiates that love. It's a, it's a question of supply, not demand or deserving. It's not about what's lovable, but about what loves. God puts out love. We're not asking about what has the magnetic power to draw out love. No, the question of lovableness isn't even on the table. God loves in this way. To say that is to say something about what God does. He loves because he's love. It comes from his being and character and nature, and it falls on all sorts of things. It's moving out this way. Belovedness is coming from the one who loves. When the Father says it of the Son here, one thing he means is that the beloved Son eternally comes forth from the loving Father. As we sing in the Christmas song, the Son is of the Father's love begotten, ere the worlds began to be. And what he eternally always was and is, the beloved Son, he now is also in the flesh, the beloved human Son. And Jesus is also well-pleasing. The Father is well-pleased in him. Jesus always behaved in perfect harmony with his Father, always acted with that family style or family resemblance that testified to their perfect unity. He went around doing good. He grew in favor with God and man. He delighted his Father in all things and delighted in his Father in all things. He was well-pleasing. There's a lot more to say about this, but fortunately, the entire book of Luke will continue to report to us the beautiful good things that Jesus did and the amazing personal character that shined through in all of his works. You might even say one reason the book of Luke exists is to show us all that Jesus did and said with enough detail and clarity that you and I can begin to have the same opinion of Jesus that God the Father has of him. As we read Luke, we ought to come to the conclusion that God the Father was right when he brought his son out onto the public stage of the world and said, isn't he great? I mean, isn't he great? Look at my son. I am well pleased in him. But I want to make the comparison here and ask you a question. Here's the comparison. God says, this is my beloved son, and thank God he can say that about you. Remember that this belovedness is the kind of belovedness that flows out from God and is flowing out and resting on all God's creatures in one sense. Jesus says the Father makes his son to shine on the good and the evil. But in a more definitive and saving sense on those who trust Jesus for salvation. You are beloved. God loves you. Jesus himself in the Jordan is the guarantee and security of that love. And when the Father calls him beloved, all people are summoned to that belovedness, and believers are solidly included in that belovedness. The voice from heaven calls you also a beloved son. And I'm going to keep saying son because it's so effective at the main thing, which is keeping our attention on Jesus as our prototype but I want to make sure that all the women in the room are making the instant easy adjustment, going, yes, I am a female son, right? Son is also me. I could say child, it's much more inclusive, but it weakens the link to Jesus, right? 
when I say son, all of us men and women alike are thinking, right, Jesus, and then me. If I can be in the bride of Christ, you can be female sons of God, right? It's just, it's, it's an easy move. Um, included in the son, so you are beloved. That's the comparison moment. That's the, that's the connection moment. But here's the question. Are we well-pleasing to God? I mean, what would it take for you to be well-pleasing to God? What would it take for the voice from heaven to say, in you, I am well-pleased? So, I mean, imagine for a second if we each had our own voices from heaven offering a running commentary on significant events in our life. You would do something, the heavens would open, and God would say of you, this is my beloved son, but I can't say I'm totally on board with what he just did. Right? Or, this is my beloved son who really blew that one. Or, this is my beloved son who once again did the right thing but for the wrong reason, dang it. Yeah? Or, this is my beloved son and my wrath is kindled by how he is treating those around him. Or, this is my beloved son and I give today a meh at best. Right? Now, the example is ridiculous. Uh, I'm going to take it apart for you now. It's in danger of making the voice from heaven a kind of divine yelp, right? Two out of five, cannot recommend, would not choose again. But here's another problem with what I just did there. It also makes God sound cruel and impossible to please, like some kind of harsh taskmaster. And another problem, it makes God sound like he delights in shaming you out loud in front of everybody. It's a voice from heaven after all. How embarrassing. Um, I'm already embarrassed of bad things I do, but imagine divine commentary out loud for everyone to hear. But God is not like that. The Father of Jesus Christ is, as the song says, a good, good Father. It's who He is. It's who He is. It's who He is. He's not out to shame you or catch you or make fun of you. He loves you, and He wants you to be good on the pattern of how Jesus is good. He has a plan for accepting you in His beloved Son, and then moving you into alignment with that son's goodness and faithfulness, which, by the way, is the same goodness and faithfulness that God the Father himself has. It's very hard for us to keep this in mind without thinking that means that God has just surrendered all of his standards or somehow fools himself about our conduct. But the Heavenly Father is not a mean parent, and he's also not an idiot parent who can't tell when his kids are brats. One of the things Jesus called his father is, your father who sees in secret. He sees and knows and judges rightly about all things. Christians are beloved and can be well-pleasing. We have to hold on to both of those. I think half of us blow it by spending our lives nervous about whether we're really beloved sons of God. We despair of God's love. We never really rest in it. But God means what he says, and what he says is, beloved. The other half of us, I think, blow it by just letting ourselves go and forgetting that God really has standards and knows exactly when our character and conduct does not line up and is not well-pleasing. But God is not mocked. You reap what you sow, and he knows right from wrong. God's good plans for us are both acceptance and approval. Acceptance and approval. Don't settle for one or the other. It is a package deal. This is my beloved son in whom I am well-pleased. That's the model. That's the goal. That's the good work God has begun in you and will be faithful to complete. And, and this, is where, uh, this is one of the things that's so hard about preaching from the front of the room is I would have to know each of you individually to know exactly which way you're likely to blow this, right? Is it acceptance or approval? You're going to have to decide for yourself and in dialogue with those who know you 
which side you're more likely to fall off of. Thank God we don't have personal voices from heaven that follow us around and grade our conduct constantly in public. It's a terrible idea, and frankly, I'm sorry I suggested it. I did criticize the idea, but here's the, really the main problem with it. It takes Jesus out of the spotlight and puts us in his place, right? I hope you noticed that. It's got a pa- I, I've got a passage of scripture here about a voice that comes down to Jesus, and I started playing with a thought project about what if we were the stars of that story? It's a story about how Jesus got a voice from heaven, and I indulged in a fantasy about us getting our own personal voice from heaven. Yeah. It's pretty presumptuous. Dear diary, today I tried to take Jesus' place in the story, and things went badly. Which brings us back to the Jordan River. What happened there in our two verses is not that we took Jesus' place, but the exact opposite, right? Jesus took our place. He stepped into the water in the power of the Holy Spirit and to the delight of God the Father to mobilize all the resources of the Holy Trinity for us and for our salvation. He took our place and lived the life that the Holy Spirit rested on and nested on because it rhymes and because I'm still trying to work through that, like the understanding of the bird thing. The life that the Father says without reservation is the well-pleasing life of the beloved Son. If you want a life that pleases God, your first move is to recognize that God made the first move and to run to that, to run to the life of Jesus, to flee the wrath to come by running to the saving life of Christ and being immersed in it. Because again, the half of the room that's inclined to be condemned needs to really cling to the part about being accepted in the beloved. But the other half that tends towards legalism might be hearing like, so I'm hearing a plan for my self-improvement at the end of which God will really be happy with me sort of like independently, right? And that's where I want to say, no, don't, don't try to sneak that back in to your own life as your plan for how to make God happy. Uh, not your life now, not your life in the past, not your life in some future where you are holier and more Christ-like, even that life which grows in holiness and knowledge of God and the grace of Jesus Christ, even that life as your life is not the one that's going to be well-pleasing to God in itself. You've always got to run to the saving life of Christ. So that, that's a word for those of you who are kind of like legalistically bent and just like to do things right because it's fun to be good, right? I mean, um, uh, just don't, don't invest your hopes there. It's always about the life of Jesus. Our salvation is in standing where Jesus stood. He joined us in the water. We don't get our own voice from heaven. We get the voice Jesus got from the Father as the Spirit applies it to us and makes it ours without it ceasing to be his, right? Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, is always the beloved Son in whom God is well pleased. It's as we are in him that those words to him become also addressed to us. In Luke 9, the Father speaks once again from heaven about Jesus and adds one more thing. This is in Luke 9:35. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to Him. If you want the voice of the Father, it's telling you, listen to the Son. It's all there. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for what you've done for us in your beloved, well-pleasing Son. Thank you for loving us and accepting us in him. Lord, make us well-pleasing to you in more and more ways. God, we want more of your goodness in us. We want it to flow through us. 
and shine out on the world through us. Move us to run to the saving life of Christ. Lord, help us believe everything you say about us. Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit communicating your love to us effectively and transformatively. And thank you for the perfect life and work of your beloved, well-pleasing Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.